Hey everyone, welcome to another edition of the From Argyle Street podcast. Trevor here. Uh, today we have a recording, an audio version of the article on Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen, what has long been considered one of the greatest novels ever written. So looking forward to jumping into it together. With that, let's cue that intro music. Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. Whenever lists have been created ranking the world's greatest novels, Pride and Prejudice has always been found on those lists and is often near the very top. Published in 1813, the work is now over 200 years old and yet still continues to attract fans and admirers the world over. It deals, obviously, with love and marriage, but also with family, friendship, and even more so the social fabric that surrounds, constricts, orders, and ultimately gives life to all of these differing relationships. Austin has a knack for showing how nearly all our decisions, even in the face of earnest desire, are made through the filter of social expectations. Sometimes men in particular hesitate when it comes to reading Jane Austen, primarily, I believe, because of false assumptions surrounding what her books are actually about. It's often suspected that she only wrote sappy love stories that will leave them bored and, and rolling their eyes. This novel does have love within it. However, it's about much, much more. For example, one of its most entertaining aspects is Jane Austen's merciless wit in which she skewers people for their ridiculousness, poking fun at the social conventions of her day. She's hilarious, and her humor rings dangerously close to life. Pride and Prejudice, more than anything else, I believe, is about the true measure of a person's worth and how we often err in our appraisals. Story Recap it is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. This is the novel's famous opening line and sets the stage for the entire novel. All of the tensions and developments of the plot surround what this line introduces, in particular because of the difficult situation the Bennett family finds themselves in. Mr. and Mrs. Bennett have five daughters, none of whom are married. With no sons, due to inheritance laws at the time, upon the death of Mr. Bennett, the entire family estate will be given away to a distant male relative, leaving all of the Bennett women with nothing. Therefore, the only way for the Bennett women to be provided for is through marriage. Mr. Bennett doesn't worry much about anything, but this situation weighs heavy upon his wife, Mrs. Bennett. Her singular driving motivation, when her silliness and her own vanity don't get in the way, is to see her daughters married. So in the opening chapter, when a wealthy bachelor moves into town, Mr. Bingley, the mothers of all eligible maidens are on the prowl, and Mrs. Bennet is the foremost among them. Side note, while this is one of the greatest novels ever written, 
It's worth noting that its pacing belongs to a different era, one where attention spans stretched further and the general willingness to afford time before tensions elevated was far greater. For that reason, the novel's beginning can feel slow to modern readers. Now, I'll also say that throughout the book's first half, Austin is setting the stage, developing these relational connections, attractions, and even repulsions in the same manner that a roller coaster moves slowly up the ramp at the beginning. And then in a moment, a sudden downhill turn occurs as one simple catalyst arises, an unexpected declaration of love, and the pace of the book erupts from that moment forward. So, if it feels slow going at first, hang in there. There's better yet to come. Now, Pride and Prejudice is organized in one long string of chapters, 61 altogether. The story does seem to contain a few distinct sections within it, though. And gaining a grasp of these sections and their relation to one another is particularly helpful in making sense of the entire novel. And so for the sake of gaining that grasp, I've organized it into different acts, four of them, uh, to help get a sense of, of how the different sections are working together. So, Act 1. Mr. Bingley, a single man in possession of a fortune, moves into the neighborhood of the Bennets, exciting the hopes of all eligible maidens, and even more so, their mothers. Early on in his time there, he falls for Jane Bennett. Jane is the eldest of the Bennett sisters. Elizabeth, the novel's main character, is the second eldest. So Mr. Bingley and Jane's romance begins to develop, while Bingley's friend, Mr. Darcy, offends Elizabeth. Then Mr. Wickham enters the story, as the militia that he's signed on with is stationed in the Bennett's hometown as well. Some mutual romantic affection develops between he, Mr. Wickham, and Elizabeth. In confidence, Wickham shares with her the relation he once had to Mr. Darcy, which was Wickham's father worked for Darcy's father, and he provides an awful depiction of Mr. Darcy's character as well, further confirming Elizabeth's own feelings toward him as a rude and arrogant man. Then another character enters, Mr. Collins. He's the distant cousin to whom the Bennett estate is entailed, meaning once Mr. Bennett dies, the Bennett house and property and everything else will be given to him, to this Mr. Collins. And so because of this arrangement, out of decency, he comes to meet the Bennett daughters to see if he can find a wife among them. He ends up proposing to Elizabeth, but because he's absolutely ridiculous, she rejects his offer. And so he proposes to her friend instead, Miss Lucas, who accepts his offer of marriage in order to be provided for herself. Meanwhile, Mr. Darcy's actions towards Elizabeth take on a stranger and kind of an interested manner. However, she is locked into her negative opinion of him. All of these tensions are developing and finally culminate at a ball that Mr. Bingley holds within his home, where the Bennett family publicly behaves with an extreme lack of social grace and propriety. Much of this behavior belongs to Mrs. Bennett in particular, who can't help but publicly gloat in her conviction that Mr. Bingley is about to propose to Jane. Mr. Bingley soon leaves for London after the ball with a stated expectation to return in just a few days. However, he never does. Jane is heartbroken and all seems over for the present. Act 2. Jane goes to stay with the gardeners, her aunt and uncle in London. While there, she has a few cold interactions with Mr. Bingley's sister, but never hears from him directly. The seedling romance between Elizabeth and Wickham ends, 
as another local eligible maiden gains a sizable inheritance, and suddenly Wickham's affections for Elizabeth cease, and his attentions are transferred from her, from Elizabeth, to this newly minted maiden. So Elizabeth travels with her aunt and uncle, the gardeners, to visit her friend, Miss Lucas, in Kent, where she is now Mrs. Collins. There she meets Lady de Borg and her daughter, uh, the aunt and cousin of Mr. Darcy. Darcy himself, as well as a friend of his, both happen to be visiting in Kent as well, staying with the de Borgs. Here in Kent, Mr. Darcy finds Elizabeth alone one morning and confesses his love for her, asking for her hand in marriage. Although he does so somewhat tactlessly, acknowledging the inferiority of her social position, uh, he, he does ask for her hand. And without much grace, and somewhat offensively, she refuses. He leaves Kent the following morning, but before he does, he delivers a letter to her. The letter provides an explanation concerning a few things that Elizabeth had brought up in their conversation, one of them being his interference in Mr. Bingley and Jane's relationship, and another being the truth of his interactions with Wickham. To protect his friend, Darcy explains, to protect Mr. Bingley, he had warned him against marrying Jane because of the impropriety of the Bennett family and because he wasn't sure Jane actually cared for Bingley. Darcy was wrong there, but he's able to acknowledge it. Wickham, it turns out, from Darcy's account, is a lying rapscallion. And at these revelations, Elizabeth is disoriented, but as she processes the letter, her entire opinion of Darcy is overturned. She begins to see that he is a decent man, somewhat proud, but of good character nonetheless. She sees that she misunderstood him. However, she never expects to see him again. She returns home to Longbourn. Act 3. The militia that Wickham's a part of moves to Brighton, and Lydia, one of the younger Bennett sisters, desires to go and spend the summer there. Mr. Bennett allows Lydia to go against Elizabeth's spirited warnings. Then Elizabeth embarks upon another journey with her aunt and uncle on a trip they had previously planned, although the trip's route is altered due to a shortened time span. Eventually, they find themselves at Pemberton, Mr. Darcy's majestic home and estate. Elizabeth is shocked and embarrassed when Darcy arrives, having heard and uh, banked on the word that he was away on travel. Immediately, though, Darcy shows Elizabeth and her aunt and uncle much attention and interest. The next day, he even introduces them to his younger sister. A mutual affection begins to stir between he and Elizabeth until a letter arrives. Jane writes to Elizabeth, telling how Lydia has run off with Wickham. The intention was likely to marry, but it's just as likely that they won't. The social consequences of such actions at that time, in that context, would have been disastrous. This has the potential to mar the reputation of the entire Bennett family, impacting even the other daughter's ability to marry. Mr. Darcy walks in as Elizabeth finishes reading the letter, and she's distraught, and she tells him everything. He's clearly concerned, but he doesn't say much. She considers his unspoken thoughts and imagines his logic to be leading him to this conclusion, that because of Lydia and Wickham, he can never marry Elizabeth. But Darcy never states what he's actually thinking. The trip is cut short as Elizabeth rushes home in the wake of this disaster. Soon after, Wickham and Lydia are found in London and a quick, quiet wedding ensues. One question persists throughout these events. Wickham is money hungry, as he has clearly shown up until this point. 
And he's foolish enough to run off with a woman, but agreeing to marry her is another thing, especially when she has no wealth to speak of. So why did he agree to marry Lydia? The suspicion is that someone paid him to do so. Act four. Elizabeth's belief is that her uncle, Mr. Gardner, paid off Wickham. To confirm, Elizabeth writes to her aunt, Mrs. Gardner. Her aunt responds, revealing that it wasn't Mr. Gardner at all. But in fact, it was Mr. Darcy. In light of his heroics, Elizabeth's affections for Darcy abound. And she suspects that the motivation behind his actions was love for her. Then he arrives at her home on several visits with Mr. Bingley. But he doesn't pay much attention to Elizabeth. and She's confused. Bingley proposes to Jane and they are engaged. Then another letter arrives from Mr. Collins to Mr. Bennett, expressing his thoughts concerning the gossip that Darcy is to marry Elizabeth. Mr. Bennett thinks the letter is ridiculous, not knowing that Elizabeth's feelings for Darcy have changed. But at this point, it's only gossip. Then Lady de Bourgh herself arrives and rudely attempts to dissuade Elizabeth from marrying Mr. Darcy. Elizabeth refuses to vow against it. Soon after, Darcy himself arrives and proposes to Elizabeth. She accepts. He reveals that Lady de Bourgh attempted to dissuade him as well, and in doing so, revealed to him that Elizabeth refused to vow against marrying him. For the first time since her initial refusal, that gave him hope. So, he returned and proposed again. Resolution. The story wraps up quickly from there, giving a few small glimpses into the years ahead with each party of the family. The story ends happily and remarkably well. An interpretation, a true measure. The true measure of a person's merit is their character. This, more than anything else, is the dynamic we see at play throughout the book and especially in the relationship between Elizabeth and Mr. Darcy. Despite her family's lack of social graces and despite her own social inferiority compared to his, he attains a true judgment of her character early on. And that is what draws him to her, her character. She, in contrast, fails to truly understand who he is throughout much of the book. She believes she has a grasp of his character, but is sorely mistaken. In truth, neither of them are perfect. And what's fascinating is to see how their romance and even furthermore, their conflict makes each of them better. If anything, Elizabeth lacks charity. She is too cutting in her appraisal of others and reaches her judgments too quickly. Darcy, on the other hand, really is proud. He is unforgiving and arrogant. He himself admits this near the novel's end, acknowledging that he was raised to be proud, but had come to find that it was more a mark against rather than for him. Despite the missed judgments among them and those slight flaws of character, through their deepening relationship, they are each made better. And when each comes to a solid understanding of the integrity that marks the other, they choose to commit to each other in marriage quite happily. I believe if there's anything Jane Austen would have us walk away with, apart from a few good laughs and the experience of a pleasant read, it's the understanding that the true measure of a person's merit is their character. The true measure of a person's merit is their character. 
physical beauty, wittiness, and a sense of humor, the promise of future wealth and comfort, or even just the general charisma and liveliness that a person can bring to a scene. These are all lesser measures that so many of us often rely upon when judging whether or not a relationship with a particular person would be a good idea. But it's reliance upon measures like these that so often lead people into awful relationships. For example, Mr. Wickham has social graces and charm, but he is certainly not respectable or trustworthy. He's a callous, manipulative liar. But if your measure is social graces or physical attractiveness and not character, then you could very well end up with a group of friends or even a spouse like him. This is exactly what happens to Mr. Bennett. He realizes shortly after his wedding with Mrs. Bennett that he mistook her beauty and liveliness for something deeper than what it was. He missed her shallowness and he came to realize only afterwards that he had married a fool, a person whose weak character went on to have damaging and destructive effects not only upon himself, but also on his children. Because when your measure fails to include character, you can often find yourself surrounded by people that you neither trust nor respect. As the proverb says, lie down with dogs, wake up with fleas. It won't be long before you come to regret some of your own decisions also and lose some respect for yourself, which is exactly what happens to Mr. Bennett. Mr. Darcy, on the other hand, may not be as sociable as Wickham, yet his character is solid. The same is true of Elizabeth. And in a relationship like that, a level of safety and even joy can be found because you've committed yourself to someone that you trust, that you respect, and that you enjoy. A person of true character whose impact on you and on your loved ones for years to come will be for the better. Because the true measure of a person's merit is their character. And if you ever wonder about a person's character, just consider, are they worthy of trust and are they worthy of respect? Closing thoughts, a glad decision. This idea surrounding character is something I've found true in my own life. I entered into marriage at a young age when I lacked wisdom, maturity, and life experience. Yet consistently, I've looked back upon the decision to marry this particular person with gratitude because she is a person I both trust and respect, a person of character. Because of the book's romantic nature, it's easy to confine the conversation around character to marriage and dating relationships, because those are the ones that we often spend the most time considering and evaluating before we commit, right? And especially because marriage involves such a significant commitment. But I believe this principle also applies to all kinds of relationships. When it comes to friends, coworkers, and even employers, it's easy to skip over this kind of consideration. It's easy to look primarily at salaries and titles and to let those fuel our decisions, right? It's easy to let friendships just kind of haphazardly develop, just kind of looking for common interests without giving too much thought to who we're actually befriending. It's easy to rely on lesser measures. But when we do, we often find ourselves facing a whole host of sorry consequences that often amount to a life of high drama and low quality because the character of those we surround ourselves with matters a lot. Maybe not as much as in marriage, but still a lot. 
The best advice I can offer in light of Austin's wisdom is to consider character in all of our relationships, to value it perhaps beyond all other features, because when it's present in every sphere of life, we have the opportunity to move through this life surrounded by people that we trust, that we respect, and that we enjoy, people that make us and our loved ones better. And in doing so, we secure for ourselves more and more of the felicity the happiness, and the joy that so many long for. Because decisions concerning who we surround ourselves with are arguably some of the most important ones we'll make in this life. So choose wisely and choose well. Choose character. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed this episode of the From Argyle Street podcast. And now, a clue for what's coming up in August. Ideas are like rabbits. You get a couple and learn how to handle them, and pretty soon, you have a dozen.